hold my set, mate. Don't worry about it. <laughs> that covered. And, <laughs> Is the bar open yet? <laughs> uh, yes, well, that's later. Okay. Hello, and welcome to episode 114 of Rockstar CMO FM. The M is the marketing, and the F. This is the weather you decided. You're probably wondering, does the world need another effing Martin podcast? I'm your host, Ian Truscott. I'm no rock star, but I picked up a thing or two over my 25-year career from techie to CMO and trusted advisor. And each week, I chat to the true rock stars, my fabulous guests and chums, and hopefully share with you some marketing street knowledge that will inspire the rock star CMO in you. Come say hello. We are Rockstar CMO on Twitter and LinkedIn and proud members of the Marketing Podcast Network. This episode is recorded on Friday the 13th of May. I hope you've had a good week and you are well, safe and staying as sane as you feel you need to be. This week, Jeff Clark and I take a dip into the Rockstar CMO swimming pool. My guest is Laurie Jones, president and CEO of Avaset Communications. And I wind down the week in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar with Robert Rose for a cocktail and a marketing tool. But first, we need to pay the bar tab. I'll be back in a moment. We'll be right back. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. On to our first segment, Jeff Clark is a sought-after marketing strategy advisor and former Serious Decisions Forrester Research Director. And this week, in what we are planning to be a monthly feature, we're taking a look at what my guests have chucked into our portal to hell for all that's wrong in marketing, the Rockstar CMOs from the book. Welcome back, Jeff. How are you, my friend? I am doing well. How are you? I'm jolly good. I didn't do the full welcome back, Jeff, to Rockstar CMO FM. <laughs> well, I, I know where I am, so you, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> I, I need the script or something. Right? Maybe if I did this more than, I don't know, what is it, 134 times, I might have got the hang of it by now. Yep. <laughs> well, here we go. So, um, so Jeff, um, I think um, as the weather is getting warmer, would you agree? I mean, we always do. Oh, the definitely. Weather. It is. We're, we're breaking 80 in Fahrenheit degrees here in uh, oh, Massachusetts, yeah. so it's definitely getting warmer. Lovely, yeah. And we've had a lovely couple of weeks here in the UK as well. So as the weather is getting warmer, I thought we'd take a dip into the Rockstar CMO swimming pool, our portal to hell for all the bullshit, snake oil, and overhyped trends this in, of this industry we love. Are the groupies down there? Yeah, yeah, almost certainly, mate. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I've got that covered. And, <laughs> is the bar open yet? <laughs> uh, uh, swim well, that's bar. later. Okay. And uh, Well, I wouldn't swim in it because people keep chucking things in there. So... And, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and um and as we're you know the weather's good and we're rock stars and as you know every week when i talk to our guests and sometimes you we chuck something in there but i thought maybe we should have a look and see if anything our rock stars have chucked in needs to be rescued what do you think mate? i think that is a wonderful idea yeah, and seeing as I've just read out a great long thing about it, it's a good job you do as well. <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't come across as rehearsed in any way whatsoever. It's all off the cuff. <laughs> all right, mate. So um, I looked back over a number of options we've had over the last 10 or so episodes from the Hollywood sign that Matthew would get chucked in, I think, the week before last. Um, in fact, you threw Simon Daniels in last week. So uh, <laughs> yes, <there> right. <laughs> <laughs> we've also had like generation labels from Joe Jansen. Uh, we've had Tim Hines complain that marketing's always in crisis mode. Uh, Jill Ransom talked about age-old shit. Typical marketing emails. Right, we're going to write an ebook. We're going to have people download it, and we're going to get our content. Get names, 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 and names, which is the longest thing I think we've chucked in the pool before. Um, and Kathy not wanting to measure the number of pieces of content we create. And then <laughs> one that came up twice. Yes. Account-based marketing. ABM. Both, both your former esteemed colleague, Kerry Cunningham, and Chris Lynch, CMO of MindTickle, both nominated. So I've come to that one at the end thinking that perhaps that might be where we should start. I, what do you think? I, I think that's it's – it's worth considering whether to to pull it out of the pool um and um or or you know or leave it in um and uh and and i think there it's a there's two sides to this this um to me this this issue or this name of of abm yeah. uh and, and i i mean i have to say i this is one of those things where i always get irritated at three letter acronyms uh, you know, because it's like ABM. I mean, that depending on you know who you are and where you come from or what industry you've been in, it means many different things, like anti-ballistic yeah. missiles, or in our case, account-based marketing. Yeah, and um, I think you know, Carrie. Uh, I mean, this is one of the things that we used to talk about all the time when we worked together at, at Serious mm-hmm. Decisions and Forrester was that it's like, well, you know. I mean, we've always been marketing to accounts, you know, let's, yeah. don't, don't tell anybody this, but you know, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> in business to business, in business to business marketing, you yeah. know, we are always marketing to accounts and they're, and yes, we're mar- marketing people, but those people live in accounts and they buy from accounts. So it's kind of like yeah. to say, you know, it's time we think about marketing to accounts is like saying, I just realized that, you know, when I eat, I need to be thinking about consuming proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. Wow. I didn't realize that. Um, (laughs) And I think, you know, one of the things that um, that got in the way, which actually was one of the things that I I would largely hold serious decisions uh, responsible for, uh, (laughs) was um, was this whole idea of the lead and and this, you know, the funnel of the of, you know, you've got your marketing interaction, then you get your lead, then you you know, it's a MQL, it's an SQL, it's a da 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 da, da, and it's going to go down and through a linear fashion and uh, down a funnel. Not not that funnels are there is necessarily a wrong way to look at things, but but um, and the reason why I threw leads in is that it's like you know the 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 concept got it wrong, and that it's like we're looking at that one interaction, and what are we going to do as we follow that one interaction where we know in business to business buying. It's uh-huh. you typically you very rarely have a single individual buying. You might have a single individual who's championing with a boss who's got to okay it, 
more often than not, you know, the majority of the time you've got multiple individuals, maybe sometimes multiple departments or buying groups who are making these decisions. And so, so that really forces you to step back and think about mm. the funnel in a, in a broader context. And, and, you know, when you, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, you're, as you're setting up your planning for the next year or multiple years and stuff like that, you want to be thinking about your total addressable market and who are the accounts in yeah. the total addressable or total serviceable market, because that's the, that's the tippy top of the funnel. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and so as you look about at, at the accounts, as they work their way down through a funnel to, to actually to a, 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 you know, a sale or a win is that you've got multiple, you're, you're trying to be tracking the multiple interactions and engagements you yeah. have with people at that account that, uh, that are all influencing that final decision. Yeah, so this is this is also part of that argument about um, that we need to be focused on opportunities rather than individuals, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you the the uh, and it, and some of this comes through marketing automation, doesn't it? And the the behavior of marketing automation drives, which is that you focus on individuals rather than on accounts. And I know that in my past, uh, in when. <laughs> When in uh, my CMO gig when I was at Sendshare is we were we were struggling to reconcile the data. I'm not going to talk about which vendors they were, but our our marketing automation solution, its whole database data structure was around individuals, and Correct. our CRM solution was built around accounts. And so, therefore, we're trying to do trying to make that reconciliation because, as you say, sales are going to think about it. As accounts, aren't they? So it's it's the whole thing. Yeah. It, it it is it's one of those fundamental mismatches that you wonder why yeah. it wasn't thought of before. <laughs> as a matter of fact, and yeah. and um, uh, of course, a lot of marketing automation, market resource management did sort of like gravitate from the consumer business. Yes. business to consumer over into business to business. But, but you're, you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head with the fact that it's like, not only does a marketing automation platform look at individual contacts and, and didn't have very good capabilities for grouping those contacts and accounts uh, until more recently, um, but also is looks at everything tactically. Every campaign is a, is a single tactic. And so you're not even thinking about the, the breadth of tactics that you are running against account running is a bad word to, to use for that, mm. but you know, the v- multiple tactics that you're using to try to engage people from those accounts. And, and so a lot of the, a lot of the, the issue that was created was tech driven. Um, mm. And, and I think, you know, one of the things, as I said, you know, serious decisions, I mean, I, that's where I kind of l- learned the whole lead management process and, you know, how we automated it at a couple of companies that I worked at is along their guidance. And, and, and we were using the tools that we had to do this. And then when, when, you know, all of a sudden when ABM tools came along, um, yeah. that was tech driven because all of a sudden now there's technology that lets mm. us identify the people from accounts that hit our website, you know, account identification, there's technology that identifies, you know, when those accounts are active at third party sites, like with intent monitoring. And then yeah. there's ways to collate, you know, engagement from target accounts, you know, into, well, the accounts or the buying groups. So you would using yeah. marketing attribution tools. So it's like yeah. all of those, you know, tech companies, they jumped on the ABM bandwagon because it's like, you know, it, it's it's looking at it as if it's new, but it's really the technology that's enabling you to look at it the way you would have would have been looking at it prior. 
Yeah, yeah, um, and um, some beautiful bird song in the background there, Jeff. Very nice. Um, what did the? <laughs> but um, I, I let them into the house. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> does that suggest that um, ABM is a a, a, cate- a technology category then that's then ignited this ABM conversation around marketers? Because I don't, I don't really get it. Because for me, I'm a big advocate of the fact that ABM should stay in the. because because it's a bullshit term because it's like digital marketing now no really you shouldn't be talking about digital marketing it's just marketing account-based marketing in b2b is exactly how you should be working it's just as you say it's created a technology category which has helped drive marketers behavior because which suggests we're slaves to the technology yeah it's it's a it to me it was a short-lived buzzword term that has lost its um uh, it's well for one it's lost its cachet because we've been talking mm-hmm. about it for so long it's not new anymore mm-hmm. but yeah. but again it is it um you're right i mean abm itself in terms of account based marketing is is nothing yeah. new it is the tools are new but the tools you should be thinking about them you know mm-hmm. in the in by virtue of what they do like with intent yeah. monitoring or marketing attribution yeah. you're you're, these are all pieces of a puzzle for your demand yeah. marketing, no matter what your demand, no matter what you know you're doing yeah. from a, a strategy perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, and um, when you were talking about the 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 technology that's available now that can show, you know, where we where we talk about um, personalization and tracking individuals and all that kind of stuff, just just knowing the accounts that come on your website is incredibly insightful, yeah. isn't it? In terms of that, and yeah. that's really what you're interested in, isn't it? it is that some people from a particular target account are interested and are now coming on your website. So therefore that should trigger some, some, yeah. some and I, you know, and I remember I was at uh, Pegasystems when, mm-hmm. when demand base came out with kind of like, yeah. as, as I remember the kind of the first foray into being able yeah. to do this and, yeah. and, and Pegas had a very, a very uh, disciplined target account approach to selling and marketing. And yeah. it's like, we knew, we knew every bank that we were trying to market to. We uh-huh. knew, um, you know, and that was by country. And so every every market yeah. we sold into in every country was like we had identified mm-hmm. who we were going to uh, be approaching. And that, to yeah. me, that's incredibly freeing because it says I'm not yeah. out there looking at the whole universe. Mm-hmm. And I may have quoted before, I know, or the guy who was running the business in France said, I'm not after all the banks in France. I'm after three banks. There's, th- you yeah. know, there's three accounts. And they're big, <laughs> so any yeah, business yeah. I do, uh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. is is going to be is going to you know is going to deliver for us. And yeah. and one of the things I know I know when ABM started to become a, a term, um, you know, because I, I I remembered back to in rough roughly the two thousand three two thousand four time frame, I was at another company I was at Progress, and I was in charge of doing the marketing for a, a target account. Uh, yeah. uh, segment and it was there was like 10 reps in several countries yeah. and um you know again we had kind of identified 300 accounts so again very manageable yeah. and it's like you know so what do we do you know it's like there's there's only so many things we can do so we're going to do account research we're going to do buyer yeah. mapping we're going to do uh, very targeted direct marketing we're going to do a relationship yeah. events where we can engage with these people you know one-on-one yeah. and that's about it and and th- yeah. and which is the interesting thing is as the ABM tools came along, it's like oh now there's now there's yeah. a lot more we can do. I mean, it kind of yeah. rests on the same 
very tight focus, but there's a lot yeah. more we can do to yeah. both engage and track the engagement of uh, all the different yeah. you know buyers within those those target accounts. Right. So we just so we're just saying that it's just B two B best practice. Um, that was around before the actual tools were, but the tools have helped us yep. um, do 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 this better. And I, I think, and I, I think that's really, and I, 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 and I also think it's really interesting because if you look at, if you look, at, you were talking about um, targeted uh, marketing. If you look at, the, I, I was working with an agency once, and they were talking about working with a different client, and they ran a LinkedIn campaign just focused on one target account, right? Um, because when you get into this mindset of, tar- of, of, of ABM, of proper ABM, you can do that, right? Because you know exactly who you're going after yep. and something like LinkedIn is incredibly good for that. So yep. that's, the, you know, it's, it's really interesting. The, big, the biggest struggle to, to me yeah. was always that sales and marketing was on the same page regarding yeah. that, that set of accounts. So it, yeah. like when I was at Pega, there was a, there was a different group, a corporate yeah. uh, strategy group that, that decided yeah. what the accounts were and that basically yeah. everybody had, you know, sales and marketing had yeah. to say, okay, these are the ones we're working with. Yeah. Um, and sometimes if you leave it to the sales team to create uh-huh. who the accounts are, then it's like, well, we're going to go after this 10. Oh, yeah. oh, by the way, you know, these, these five fall off cause yeah, we don't like them. So we're going to go, we're going to add people, which yeah, becomes, yeah. which is fine yeah. for them, but it's, it makes it tough for uh, marketing because and then you've got a moving uh, you know, yeah. bubble, if you will, that's yeah. very hard to get your arms uh, around. And also, you know, from a marketing perspective, um, we're often encouraged or looking at having that top of funnel as wide as we possibly can, right? Yes. Often that's talked about around B2B writing is it's so generic because we're trying to not offend anybody and capture as many people in there. But if you can then take this very highly targeted account approach, really understand who your customer is and who you're going after, that really helps you when you're creating this content and creating a story around, you know who you're not trying to appeal to, right? Right. right. But it, it makes a much better content and much better marketing, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm split then. So are we, are we leaving ABM to its, we're, we're its, taking, its I think, it, I think the thing was the term we uh, threw it because again, account-based marketing well. is marketing in the business to business world. Right. So it's the term we're throwing in and it's uh-huh. the technology and the right. best practices that will pull out. Right. I love maybe, it. So maybe, that, maybe, maybe okay. because there's multiple people on an account, there's, there's like, there's different things we can throw back in and things that yeah. pull out. How's that? Yeah, it sounds good. And I think if people should let us know. What do they think? Do they think that I, ABM should stay in the pool or should come out? The other thing is, is I just want to point out that if people want to listen to Kerry Cunningham talking about it or, or Chris, Chris Lynch, that was episode 105 and episode 102, which I'll include a link to in the show notes. So that leaves me with one more agenda item. We've done the weather. The weather's nice. We've gone to the pool. What are we listening to when we're rescuing these things jeff we're listening to a tune called head above water which wow. is appropriate for yeah people drowning in the pool uh april well, levine that, from uh, 2019 uh, uh it's, it seems with our mixed view of abm at this point it's barely got its head above water but it seems <laughs> it's, i think it's being, I, I was thinking more of our listeners than the than the uh, <laughs> than the acronym <laughs> Because as she says, I gotta, I gotta keep the calm before the storm. I don't want to, I don't want less. I don't want more. I just yeah. want to focus on my accounts. 
Yeah, Wait, she didn't I'm... put that last part in. But... <laughs> <laughs> but then if she was in B2B sales, almost that's exactly that's what she what was, she was thinking. Yes. I love it, Jeff. Thank you very much, mate. And um, will I see you next week? We'll be back, yes. Excellent. I look forward to it. Cheers, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I've got to keep the calm before the storm. I don't want less. I don't want more. Bar the windows and the doors To keep me safe, to keep me warm Yeah, my life is what I'm fighting for Can't part the sea, can't reach the shore Thank you, Jeff. And that was Head Above Water by Avril Lavigne from 2019. And as I mentioned, we'll be dipping into the swimming pool once a month and asking for your votes. And in the meantime, if you have any feedback or suggestions, we'd love to hear them. We are Rockstar CMO on the socials or drop us an email at hello at rockstarcmo.com. Right, on to my guest, Lloyd Jones, the president and CEO of Avocet Communications, has more than 25 years of experience in all aspects of marketing, advertising, PR and social media, bringing her strong understanding of today's consumer and the marketplace and an attitude of resisting business as usual thinking to local and well-known brands. It was fun chatting to Laurie. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. Hi, Laurie. Welcome to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And so for people that don't know you, Laurie, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I am president and CEO of a great agency in the Denver area by the name of Avocet Communications. We've been in business for 42 years. I've been with the agency for 32 years and I live and breathe agency life and marketing trends and four kids, a great husband and a great dog. That's about weighs about as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So you're chatting to us from Denver right now. I sure am in the yeah. very, very sunny city with snow capped mountains right behind me. It's a gorgeous day. Lovely. Well, anybody who listens to this podcast knows that we're obsessed with the weather. So that sounds fantastic. Yeah. So, so um, Avocet, Avocet Communications, what do you focus on? Is it PR or are you more broader than that? We are broader. We're an mm-hmm. integrated communications firm. So we do focus on first strategy. Uh, we are a strategy first firm. We mm-hmm. don't work with many brands where we are not deploying, you know, a 60, 90 day strategy um, session. And then we integrate after that through owned, earned, shared and paid approaches. Nice. And um your company was founded by your father, I believe, having listened to you on other podcasts. I so know it yeah. was. So my father founded the agency in 1980. And wow. he at the time was very involved in trade show exhibitry and traveled the world of very, very large enterprise clients and was tired of not being home uh, mm. during the week and only on the weekends with the family. 
So he uh, left that partnership and started Avocet, which was a one-man shop out of the basement of my parents' home. Um, for many years, I graduated college in 1989 with a broadcast journalism degree, asking myself, what in the world am I going to do with this? Yes. A long story short, um, very uh, soon after my graduation, I was interning for a professor of mine. The professor asked my father to do a project. During that project, my father and I were having lunch and he sat me down and said, you know, why don't we do this together? Yeah. And so uh, the history uh, with the two of us, great, great partnership uh, started then and there. Nice. Because normally, I mean, I ask uh, marketers, what inspired you to get into marketing? But it's the family business that's, that's got yeah. you into it, right? The inspiration for me was, what am I going to do next? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I grew to love it uh, and love this partnership so much with my father. It was truly the gift um, that I never saw coming. Wow. Wow. And what, and you, and you didn't study marketing at university then this came to you, um, through, through, through your work. It did. It, you know, it was very organic. My granddad was also in marketing. He mm -hmm. had a trade show exhibit company in uh, Chicago. Uh, you know, we're definitely an arts sort of family. Yeah. And my uncle uh, was with a, a firm in Chicago as well. And so I grew up with it. It was very innate. My father even took us to each year, took one child to a trade show. Um, there are four siblings in my family as well. And so I, I feel like I grew up on the trade show floor um, yes. and these deep discussions and then, you know, saying no to uh, what I thought was going to be my passion in my career, broadcast journalism, and then you know, having this opportunity uh, present itself. Uh, you know, it's funny. People often say, you know, you've never really been through an interview, have you? And I said, well, there's two types of interviews. I mean, there's an interview for a job and mine lasted 18 years. And then there is, you know, clients, of course, interview us day in and day out. So I totally disagree with what you just said. Uh, I, I was actually going to disagree with, with that statement, knowing what it's like to, to run an agency. You're being interviewed all of the time. Constantly. Yeah, and, and dare I even add, you know, our own team members, our own uh, employees, right? They're yeah. constantly, yeah, it's, it's constant. Yeah, yeah. But it, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question to ask you because um, I guess because you're incredibly rare in having that one company career, aren't you, that you've been doing the same thing for all this time. So what drives you along for, for doing the same thing for all this time? You know, it started out as just this passion to be with my father um, mm -hmm. day in and day out. And, you know, he was my best friend and we had so much fun together. And just there was so much energy. He was an incredible, incredible human being and just loved people. And so much of my passion, um, you know, I gained through him. And he was so wise. And, um, you know, so learning the industry, I truly attribute to him. And this thirst to always want to learn, um, you know, I really, you know, I was captivating just listening to him. And, you know, it just grew from there. And, yeah. you know, we became very close. And it is one career because I love what I do. Yeah. If I did not love what I do, then I would not be doing this. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 So, um, so you're still in love with uh, running this agency. And by the way, where, where does the name Avocet come from? Well, that's very interesting because the same professor I mentioned earlier in the show, mm -hmm. we had a thesis paper and 
the thesis, thesis paper um, that I wrote was about the naming of the agency. And prior to that, it was simply Satorius Advertising. Mm. And my dad did not want to sound like um, another agency or a legal firm or an accounting yeah. firm. Yeah. So he gave me a list of many names one day and Avocet was on that list. And I just pointed to it. And I said, this is it starts with an A. I love the AV um, mm -hmm. you know, vernacular. It sounds beautiful. It rolls off the tongue. And yeah. it's just you know, a beautiful, beautiful world, word. It happened to be his favorite shorebird. And yeah. um, here we are you know, 42 years later. <laughs> I like it. And it sounds like it's got momentum, doesn't it? Avocet. It does. It sounds like it's, yeah. it, it does something. You know, Thank it's you a for rocket that. Or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so over all this time, I mean, you must have seen changes both in terms of um, the kind of work you do as an agency, uh, and the, but the role also and the, the relationship that you have. I mean, the obvious one will be obviously channels and technology have changed a great deal of the, in that time. But what have you seen in terms of the value agencies can offer clients that's changed over this period of time? Or is it the same? What do you think? Well, you know, they're certainly adapting to change, but the, there's yeah. also setting trends um, to cause change, right? And I um, would like to believe that we are one of those agencies that has truly been trend setting. And if we take a look at the critical junctures of, you know, telephone, TV, computer, laptop, mm -hmm. mobile phone, and how they have changed the way products and services go to market, um, it truly is, you know, an amazing juxtaposition um, over time. And I, you know, I love the fact that, you know, if we talk, we started out as an ad agency only doing advertising and then we picked, mm -hmm. and only B2B, by the way. Oh, and wow. then we picked up a large um, statewide consumer program. And so we quickly had to adapt between them. Not a lot of adaptation, really, but, you know, we became um, more integrated. And then, you know, years later, we had a client um, let me know that they had, you know, a PR situation happened and we needed you to, you know, to, to handle this PR situation. So guess what? We had a yeah. PR firm. So that's ultimately how we integrated the services that we offer and grew over time. Um, and it's been, you know, truly an amazing journey thinking back to, you know, we were the first agency in the state of Colorado to give a seminar on this thing called the World Wide Web. And <laughs> wow. we introduced a concept called email at the time as well. Yeah. And so, you know, are you setting trends or is technology setting trends for you? I think yeah. there's probably a healthy juxtaposition between the two. Um, but certainly that agency relationship and providing value is, is uh, making certain um, that you are leading the client down a path that they can be incredibly successful through um, and revenue generating. Right, right. So you've actually, I mean, especially with your background, your education, you've gone from sort of that broadcast type of, of media and, and, and that kind of selling and marketing to, you know, the new social selling. What, what do you think, what do you think's changed in the way that you now work with clients around that stuff? Because you said that you started off as a brand agency. So presumably there was a lot of broadcast and there was a lot of out of home and stuff like that going on. What, what, what how have you shifted and what skills have, have, have you needed to develop over that time? You know, I think it's always, and, and this has been a skill from, from day one, um, mm -hmm. but I think we adapt more deeply now to client need, meaning um, our clients' customers need. So how are we getting people to the buyer table? You know, it's fragmented because yeah. we've got so many screen-to-screen -screen, um, tools 
you know, print, direct mail, you know, just, just so yeah. fragmented tactically. So what is it that we can do to build that awareness, to build that insight, intrigue, excitement, and get them want to learn to learn more about a product? And certainly social selling, strategic social is a part of that. And right. a very, very important part at, you know, is it based on the product lifespan or the service lifespan of a company? Is it more top of funnel or is it mid funnel or do we close the deal with it? Those are the key things that we try to hone in and uh, figure out with our clients is, you know, what part of the funnel is needed with this sort of a tool. And it must be a part of every program, period. Um, I think a lot of people, you can lead with it, but a lot of people don't have the luxury of uh, brand awareness and they need more top of funnel awareness building ultimately to drive people through. Uh, but it, you know, it is very strategic. You do need to test and scale. You do need to adapt. Uh, you've got to throw a lot at it to begin with um, through the different modes of which uh, social, social selling can take place, whether it be something similar to this podcast, mm-hmm. a video cast, a solo cast, a blog, yeah. you know, what is your hub to the spoke in which you're going to develop that, that content through. Yeah, yeah, and um, I was—I'll uh, take you back. Just a question. I was just thinking about something else you said. The fact that your agency has grown these different um, disciplines, right, th- through the trust of your customers. You said, "Oh, you know, we had a client and they had a PR problem, so we developed this PR." Thing. I think that's really interesting in the way that agencies evolve, isn't it? Is you build trust with customers and then they let you build out these capabilities. Well, it's pivot, right? So when you've got a great customer relationship, you constantly have to pivot based on their need. It's interesting. I I had a a team member once say, Lori, we don't do that. (laughs) And I said, oh, yes, we do. And then, you know, she only lasted for another few months because I'm constantly, you know, those agencies that weren't setting trend or adapting are out of business today. And, and I, we are here 42 years strong because of the mindset that we have as a leadership team. And yes, we are constantly pivoting, constantly adapting because the market around us, um, the client need, the customer need is constantly there. And I want people who can think on their feet and solve problems, not say we don't do that. Yeah. And I think that reflects also um, a good marketer because, um, you know, often on this show, actually, we talk about things like marketing education and whether people should get a formal marketing education or should they learn on a job. I think that clearly from what you've just been saying there as well is that you need to be a lifelong learner as a marketer, don't you? You need to stay on top of all these things, particularly if you're running an agency. I'll never forget my father and I were uh, leaving a meeting with Coors um, yeah. very early in my career. And we got into the car and I, I just said, I you're so smart. You've got so much (laughs) wisdom and you're an expert at what you do. And I can't wait until I, you know, I get to that point. And he said, Mm -hmm. Lori, I'm not an expert because I'm constantly learning. Yeah. And I'll never forget that conversation. And it is the mantra by which I, as a leader truly live by, um, I, you know, I am constantly learning and, you know, from making mistakes too, you know, (laughs) that is par for course here. And, um, and, you know, that to me is was a real gift that I received from my father very early on was that mindset. Well, I mean, and that's the nature of marketing, isn't it? I mean, if you're not making mistakes, uh, you're probably not, um, you know, you're not testing enough, because um, 
you know, we are we are basically an industry of of hedging, aren't we? Hedging our investments. Some things are going to work, some things aren't going to work. But you've got to fail fast, learn from that, and move on because um, you can't just stick to the same old thing that you've done all of the time, sitting on your little hamster wheel. You have to try these new things. I agree, and and technology has really provided that mm. opportunity for us, right? If we yeah. take a look you know, at the Mad Men um, age and eras, uh, I mean, there wasn't a lot of fast happening, right? And testing and scaling um, took, you know, an eternity. Uh, So to be in that position now where we can adapt and quickly, you know, uh, quickly uh, test and scale uh, and know what paths we need to be optimizing and those that we need to be pushing aside is, is, you know, an incredible opportunity for all brands out there. Yeah. And as the, I mean, over your career um, with, with this agency and, and with working with clients, have you seen a change in the way that um, that relationship works or is that still the same? I mean, from my perspective, I mean, I've seen a whole range, right? I've seen, um, you know, really good client marketing, uh, client agency relationships with a great brief and a really tight, tight relationship. And I've seen you know, it not be so good. So, what have right. you seen? Have you seen that change over time, or, or is it exactly the same as it's always been? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Thank you for that because I don't. I think it's all about the right client agency, mm-hmm. yeah, relationship. And some, you know, CMOS are better off um, maintaining deep control, and that's mm-hmm. a positive word, by the way, yeah. over an in-house team. And if they've got a great strategist on the team or two or three, or they hire, you know, agencies just for strategy, then implementing uh, programs, you know, these are large enterprise brands is where this makes sense, right? Implementing programs, I think, um, can work very, very well. At the same, you know, token, there are a lot of great CMOs out there that really rely on their agency partnerships based on, you know, a swim lane that they feel they might be very successful in. And it becomes more cost effective for them because they've got 10 PR professionals within a PR agency instead of being yeah. able to afford one or two or three FTEs. Yeah. So I, of course, feel that outsourcing <laughs> is the right thing to do um, yeah. because you do have more of that expertise on the table. And certainly yeah. for small to medium sized businesses, those SMBs, it's Absolutely. so difficult to gain. You know, yeah. Most of them can't hire a true CMO, right? Absolutely, and it's so difficult to um, to build that expertise, Abs- you know, with yeah. those size businesses. Absolutely, and I think that particularly with some skills like PPC, SEO, and those those kind of things, or PR, you know, where you've got to build those relationships, um, you need the experts, right? You can't you you can't do that yourself. And if you do try and in house it, you're getting the limited experience of your own uh, business and their experience within your own business. Whereas when you work with an agency, they're working with twenty other clients and they're, they're seeing things happening in your market that you may not be able to see until they hit you. I, I agree. And, and I yeah. think it's because those individuals get too close to what they do day in and day out. Absolutely. Um, and it, you know, it whitewashes the the approach that they may take and, yeah. and they've got their blinders on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of working with agencies. I mean, there, there is a flip side. I've worked with CMOs that completely outsource everything. To, to agencies, including uh, my, my phrase is their marketing brain. So they, right. they've lost their creativity and their drive. And, and probably you can't articulate what they're trying to get done from a creative perspective because they've, they've outsourced everything. But um, I think there's a balance there. But I think a good agency, um, this, is, this, is, this is a nice uh, 
ad for agencies and for ever since. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> no, I, that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan. But um, okay, so I better crack on my questions, the other questions as well. Um, I understand that, um, so, I mean, you can't I mean, really, hopefully one day we won't mention COVID in the way that we all work, but clearly there is a big change in the way that we work. And I think that's particularly impacted uh, the, the marketing industry and, and agencies. Um, so what have you, what, have, what changes have you seen and how has that affected you? Are you guys now a remote agency or you still got a bunch of people in the office? Well, it, it's hybrid for sure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, pre-COVID, we tried remote working a couple of times and it failed yeah. fast because the team members, you know, abused the luxury that it afforded. Um, I don't see that happening at all anymore. But I also believe mm -hmm. it took you know, a crisis <laughs> to create better synergy uh, yeah. remotely for people because they they were just thirsty for human interaction during that time as well. So I, yeah. I feel businesses during that time really perfected how successful um, remote working can be and mm -hmm. and the accountability that is needed to create success. So yes, we have a hybrid team um, worldwide, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, and those of us who come to the office each day just need that human touch, that interaction, yeah. that creativity, that you know ability to spark innovation. Um, through seeing more nonverbals with someone instead of just the shoulder up or waist up. And, <laughs> and I do think that that is going to be a very, very important thing that companies will miss years downstream. And, and um, yeah. dare I say, team members and people in general as well, that human touch, um, I think, is very, very important. It worked very well for the agency, which is why we've kept it in place. Mm -hmm. um, we've been able to uh, hire stronger people by not you know, insisting that they, number one, be in the agency or number two, yeah. live near the agency. So, you know, our team now globally uh, is, you know, has been perfected through that. And the other thing I might add is mm -hmm. we've adapted to change. So we've adapted to, um, for instance, mothers who don't want to work a full-time job yeah. anymore, but yeah. they still want to dip their toe. So we yeah. might hire through this gig worker campaign that we've got um, going on right now, which we've hired many people through because we're adapting to what they want. Um, we might hire a team member for 12 hours or 15 hours a week just to work on a single account. Whereas in the past, we would say it's a 40 or 50 hour a week job and you're going to be assigned these three these mm -hmm. three these three accounts why not just hire three people for it now and yeah. let them work you know 10 15 hours a week so meeting people where they are and what they want to maintain their own lifestyle i think is a very important piece of this yeah, yeah absolutely i mean i i spent a time with um one of the mccann agencies and they it's only a few years ago so it's in modern times they um they they insisted that everybody was in the office between nine and a half past five in in, mm -hmm. in london and that doesn't work for everybody. And you also end no. up with a group of people in the office who are adapted to that. You know, they're, right. they're, they're, you, and you have that one monoculture mindset of, of, the, of the metropolitan folks that can mm -hmm. live near the office and can, and can do that. And you lose out on so much talent and, and um, diverse thinking, don't you? I, I, you know, I agree. And, and I will say it's interesting. The generational side of this is very yeah. interesting because, uh, you know, typically, you know, the individuals with 20 plus years are those that want to be in the office. Mm -hmm. um, they need that human interaction. And those that are newer to the team don't necessarily need it. Um, or they need it in a different way. A Zoom camera is absolutely fine for them to get their fix. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so 
companies, you know, need to consider that as well. Well, yeah. And I think that, I mean, if you do things like Myers-Briggs test, it means there are people oh. that get, get energy from other people, right? And yeah. it's, it's harder to get that energy from a Zoom call. And plus, I mean, with Zoom calls, we tend to, we tend to not do the trivial stuff of getting coffee together and stuff like that. It's just, bam, meeting starts, agenda starts, off you go. It's not as fun. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm just realizing the time, Laurie, I'm very much enjoying the conversation. I'm going to move on to our last question, if that's all right with you. Sure. We have a regular feature in the Rockstar CMO called the Swim Pool, our portal to health for all the BS snake call and overhype trends, basically all that's wrong with this marketing craft that we clearly love. What would you throw into our pool? Yeah, I would say that it is brands believing that a digital advertising approach is going to solve all their problems. (laughs) And everyone, everyone believes that it's digital first, digital first, digital first, and digital is so much more than that. And if you don't have an awareness um, and, you know, it's pretty impossible to make that happen. And there are ways in which you can go about building awareness and building a database. If we just say B2B tech here for a second, or, you know, dare I say consumer or retail, uh, you know, our traditional means by advertising that must be deployed in order to build top of mind awareness and ultimately be able to move people through the funnel and establish preference. Um, It is, there are very few digital first outside of enterprise, very well-known companies um, that, that works well for brands today. Yeah, no, I like that. And, and also from the conversation we were having just now, it sounds to me like the approach you take with your clients, because I was trying to sort of little pin you down on, on some of the changes that have happened about channels and technology is things are appropriate at certain points in the life, in the, in the life cycle of a customer. Right. And, right. and are appropriate for different audiences. I mean, um, one of, one of my regular guests, Jeff Clark, he talks about how, you know, there's no point in um, in doing sponsored tweets or, or Google ads for a CEO that never reads them, right? So I know. <laughs> you need to appeal to those guys in the way that, that you've always done. So I think that's an excellent ad, um, addition to our Rockstar CMO swimming pool. Thank you very much, Laurie. And Thank you. when people spin the dial on the interwebs, where are they going to find you? Uh, they can reach me on Twitter at mm-hmm. Laurie Jones and Laurie at Avocet, A-V-O-C-E-T, communications.com. Splendid. Away. Splendid. I'll include all your links in the show notes and I very much look forward to speaking to you again, Laurie. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Laurie. And I'll include all her links in the show notes and also to her podcast, Integrate and Ignite, on which she was kind enough to have me as a guest recently. You can also find that by searching Integrate and Ignite on your podcasting jukebox. Right, it's Friday evening. Time to wind down the Rockstar CMO virtual bar and find my friend and content marketing guru, Robert Rose, chief troublemaker at the content advisory for a cocktail and a marketing thought. Good evening, Robert. What are you drinking? Oh, hello, my friend, and welcome. Welcome to the bar. Uh, it's boy, it's noisy here tonight. Uh, you know, as I walked in, uh-huh. I swore is, you've got some sort of like space program going off there in the corner. Is that is that? A, I mean, I see a I see a spaceman with a rocket ship, and is that a flying saucer? What is going on over there? You've got some sort of 
Yeah, it's it's some sort of uh, like you know Star Trekky sort of space thing happening over there in the corner. I, I, I wonder where you'll find all these like space sounds to 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 really fulfill the whole thing. Anyway, I wonder as well. I wonder as well. I mean, we will, uh, we, we will yes. sally forth uh, <laughs> among the din of space noises. Um, I have something in fun for us tonight. Mm-hmm. I, I have now this drink that we're going to drink tonight. Um, it has, you know, there is a, a bit of a baggage that it carries. Um, it is considered one of those sort of, uh, um, you know, drinks that manly men don't drink. Um, <laughs> however, you know, which is completely sexist. Um, yes, I'll say that. But I find, and I love this drink, um, mm-hmm. and I find that it's just as prevalent among men, women, you know, anyone really. Um, and that is a cosmopolitan. Um and so I make a cosmopolitan a little differently than is classic. Um, and so, uh, and, and it probably the, 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 the part that I alter won't be surprising to anybody who's listened to this show more than <laughs> a few times, um, which is uh, the sugar, the lack of sugar that I, that I, that I mm-hmm. put into it. So yeah. basically we start with uh, our, our lovely uh, vodka, you know, because mm-hmm. of course that's where we start with a cosmopolitan is vodka. And then I put in a hundred percent cranberry juice, like not the sweetened stuff. So unsweetened right. uh, cranberry juice. And so mostly you'd find that the cosmopolitan is going to be very sweet and very, you know, and sweetened by the cranberry juice itself. But then it has so many, so much sugar in it. Um, and the interesting thing is I find that when you uh, put in the unsweetened juice, you get a much deeper color. And so mm-hmm. what ends up happening is when you mix it with the vodka, you get a much deeper, brighter, sort of more vibrant uh, colored. And so the drink is much more beautiful, actually, than it than yeah. it normally is. I mean, I love pink. So, you know, I'm a big <laughs> pink fan. Um so then, if you want to sweeten it, you know, you can put a number of things into it, uh, mm-hmm. including things like honey, if that's, you know, if that's your, uh, if that's mm-hmm. your preference. I actually like it with just the unsweetened cranberry juice and the yeah. vodka. Uh, and that's really all it is. It's a very simple uh, yeah. drink to make. Um, and so, you know, maybe a little lemon twist or, or something like that nice. if, you're, if you're into that. Um, but then we'll, you know, we'll take our big bright pink drinks and and and, and, and have a di- have a discussion. Splendid. Well, um, I've got to I've got to tell you that um, I was once accused of drinking a girly drink, and it's uh, and I'm going to attempt to make your Cosmo with the ingredients on my desktop bar, and I should end up with something that was once described as a girly drink to me. So anyway, I'm going to put some ice in my glass. Did yeah. you put ice in yours? Yeah. Uh, no, you. This is a you know. This is one of those ones where you want to no shake it uh, and um, shake it all up over ice, and then pour it into ah, a martini glass of some kind, so that you get gotcha. the ultra fanciness to it. Yeah, I am. Um, I've never had a Cosmo. I was familiar with them, but I didn't know what went in them, so I've learned something this evening. Um, I'm going to. Um, I'm obviously going to go with the uh, Hendrix gin rather than the vodka, which is, uh, I think, a decent. Um, substitute 
And then um, cranberry juice, you say. Most well, English going- of vodkas, right? I mean, as you yes. as you move, oh, move further west in Europe, yes. I find that the vodka turns into gin. <laughs> and I am gonna, I'm gonna put in there. The, the cranberry isn't really something we grow on these shores so much. Uh, we're more into cucumbers. So I'm gonna put in some, which is the in, most English of cranberries. Uh, so I'm gonna put in some cucumber tonic water into this. I see. To make my cosmo. I see. And it's in a straight glass. It's not in a fancy cocktail glass either. Um, let me give this a taste. I'll give my girly drink a taste. Mmm. That's delicious, Robert. Very nice. Yes, exactly. Yes. And no, nobody's ever described me as a manly man, and I'm happy to drink the girly drinks. Uh, so that's absolutely delicious. So we're drinking these wonderful pink drinks. Mine isn't terribly pink, but imagine mm. we are. Oh, and by the way, I could drink these every week. Um, what, where are we going to go with these? Well, I thought we'd have to go to, so since we're drinking very fancy drinks, mm-hmm. um, I think we have to go to a very fancy place, which of course means we're going to France. Um, and, uh, I think we need to take advantage of the weather and mm-hmm. we need to get somewhere on the coast, uh, of France. I'm not exactly sure where, um, uh, and I wish I was more familiar with the French, coast mm. than I am um, but somewhere in the south of France somewhere where there is uh, somewhere where we can sit mm-hmm. in a warm place drink our most fancy of drinks in the most fancy uh, of of places and you know I, I, I'm not sure where that where, where that would be you might know better than me mm-hmm. but um, it, it feels like that's where we need to be you know I maybe think- somewhere down near Bordeaux or yeah. somewhere um, you know Near, uh, you know, Khan or, or somewhere. Exactly. Somewhere there. I think I think I think I think if you are over in Europe and we're drinking these fancy drinks, it has to be Khan or Monaco or somewhere super fancy. Yes, that, that feels like boat. it, right? Yeah, let's push the boat out. And um, we're we're sitting, sipping, watching all the beautiful people with our beautiful drinks. Uh, what are we gonna? What does conversation turn to once we've decided where we are? <laughs> well, there's an interesting thing. So, and you're going to appreciate this conversation, mm-hmm. I think, a lot because I know you appreciate uh, classic cars, yes. um, you know, and and you actually have a classic car, yes, um, and drive it occasionally. I see on <laughs> social media, um, probably not as much as you would like, um, mm-hmm. but um, you know, so. There's an interesting debate that happens among content marketers. Uh, and if you want to start a fight with content marketers, ask whether or not you should include the date of publication on your post. Oh, yeah. Yes. And so if you ask four content marketers whether you should uh-huh. include the date, you know, you'll know, you get five answers back, right? Because yes, <laughs> it, it, one, one of them will have two more opinions, right? Um, <laughs> Now there's there, there's arguments on both sides of this, right? There is the uh-huh. argument who say, well, you can't correctly cite any content that's not properly dated, mm-hmm. and I totally get that argument. And then there's also the side that says, well, if I include a date, that makes the content seem old, even when it's not, and and yeah. can possibly cause people to move away from it, even though the content is evergreen. And but here's the thing: I think it's the wrong question. Um, because, you know, I can see both sides of the SEO argument and, and all those kinds of things. But the thing is, the, a timeless piece of content doesn't automatically mean it's going to stand the test of time. And in other words, it's not going to become classic just because you don't put a date on it. 
Uh, and by the way, content that stands the test of time that is classic isn't necessarily timeless. In other words, it may have yes. overt references to things that are within the within the actual context of of the time that it was written in. Yeah. And you know, so when we write, you know, when we're thinking about creating content that is that will become classic or that is evergreen, one of the things that we immediately do is we start trying to avoid doing anything that would link the piece to the time that it was written in, right? So we yeah. stay away from pop culture references or news references or time-based yeah. references in order to make the piece evergreen. Yeah. And but honestly, that's an impossible task. You can't do that. You cannot know a priori what you're going to put into your content because you have no idea what details in the future mm -hmm. is going to make that that seem dated. You know, and you know there but are also, so many. You're, you're stripping the personality out of the thing, aren't you? If you that's you're not right, place exactly. It, yeah. Yeah. So uh, basically, when you say, "Okay, well, then, how does anything become?" classic, you know, mm -hmm. in that sort of dictionary definition of, you know, a work that is recognized and has established value over time, it, you know, the answer is because it is, yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's, it's unsatisfying, but it's true that classic yes. things that are classic are classic because they last yeah. and that's it. That's the only reason that they're classic. And there's an author. I love the way he describes this when he says, when he, uh, it's uh, Italo Calvino, when he talks about, um, you know, about classics and he says, a classic is a piece that has never exhausted all it has to say to its reader. And oh. I love that because, and what made me think of it was I was just rereading um, a book, uh, Basic Marketing, A Managerial Approach. Yes, I'm that guy. Um, <laughs> who, written by a guy by the name of Jerome McCarthy back in the 1960s. And you'll not be familiar with the book, but you'll totally be familiar with the theme of the book, which it introduced this concept, which was brand new and innovative and weird at the time called the four P's, mm -hmm. uh, which of course, if any of you are in marketing, you know, you know, the four yep. P's product place, price yep. promotion and the yep. four P's of marketing. It's a classic marketing book. I've read yep. it now three times. It's every time I read it, I learn something new. But however, I can tell you, it's so clear that when you read this book that it was written in the 1960s, yeah, you know, yeah. it's just got all the markings of a 1960s book. And by today, you look at a movie like the Lego movie, great, wonderful, I would argue mm -hmm. a classic movie, despite the fact that most of its characters are topical or pop culture based. You yeah. know, it will, I think it will last the test of time because it never really exhausts all it has to say. Mm -hmm. So when you think about writing a classic piece of content, there are typically seven ideas that I think are really important when you, because you can't predict and you can't predetermine, but one, is it memorable? In other words, mm -hmm. are you creating something that's truly memorable? Two, do you build a world? Do you build a fully realized setting for your content, B2B or B2C? Mm -hmm. Three, do you have a distinctive style? In other words, find a style and really stick the landing when you do that style. Yeah. Four, are you talking about larger truths? In other words, are you illuminating something that's bigger and truthful in the world? Yeah. Five, are you nodding off to um, uh, traditions? In other words, are you either trying to pay respect to a tradition that we're escaping from or are you paying respect to a tradition that is actually there and you want to embrace? Mm -hmm. And then six, does it have great structure? 
And seven, and maybe the most important one, ambiguity. And what I mean by that is that great classic content leaves something for the audience to interpret. It leaves mm -hmm. them to find their own way to come either to different conclusions or interpret the work in a way that the author didn't expect. So those seven pressure points I find that are great for getting to cl classic content. And again, you can't determine until time happens, because that's the only thing that becomes of a classic. But if you work on those things, I think you have a better shot at creating it. I love those seven. That's, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, that, that's, um, and, and uh, I mean, setting out to write a classic is an interesting approach as well, isn't it? Because it's like setting out to be viral or something like that. It's, it's, the, it's the wrong objective in a way, isn't it? And I also, but I completely agree with the argument about putting dates on because people are obsessed with youth when it comes to content aren't they but on the other hand um i mean there's stuff you've written for sure i know and there's stuff that i've written that is absolutely relevant today that people probably don't pay attention to because it's got a date on it but if you were to refresh that then it'd be a great piece of content that i mean could a classic piece of content just be something that you constantly refresh um perhaps? It, absolutely. Yeah, it's that classic, you know, the, the, the classic idea of the, you know, your classic Thanksgiving turkey, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, or, or, you know, the recipe for this or that piece of yeah. content, which you constantly go back and, 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 and yes. revisit and update and those kinds of things. Yeah. And I think, you know, evolving, you know, I think of, you know, Kotler's book, right? You know, yeah. Kotler's textbook on marketing has been updated. I think he's done 19 or 20 different editions at this point, mm -hmm. all of mm -hmm. which sort of take into account the newest evolutions. And, yeah. and so it's a classic textbook that has been yeah. updated and evolved over the last, you know, 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, uh, something like marketing, I love the old marketing books, as you know, I've got a few as well, is, okay, so look, be, look through the, you know, dated references and some of the language. Um, the, the 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 lessons are still there exactly the same as what people are writing now in the new books right yeah that I mean yeah. it's you know it's 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 what i find is is that so much of what poses as evergreen content these days mm -hmm. is just content that re, and you said it well right it just removes some of the engagement out of it because it's trying to remove some of the topicality out of it so that it yeah. feels more timeless and yeah. what I think it does is that it, it, you know, it, you remove some of the things that might make it classic because you're simply trying to make it yeah. feel like it doesn't have, it, it wasn't written in a particular time. And I think that's the mistake that we make yeah. is that we feel like you have to remove all of the currentness out of it in order yeah. to make it classic and stand the test of time when actually it's probably the opposite. Yeah. And when, um, I love this topic. When and when you write and you put topical references in there, those are the things that connect us as people, right? In 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 our tribe. So, if I was to write something and I made a reference to, I don't know, Monty Python or some classic comedy of now, or or maybe um, uh, you know any anything like that, you're connecting with an audience that understands what you're talking about, and you can shortcut what you're saying by making those kinds of references. Now, sure at some point that that defines you as it you know where you stand in the culture and, and is saying something about your audience but that's fine right you're making that connection yeah i think it's you know it's in the it's in you know when you think about it is 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 and you think about it against those sort of seven pressure points you know i think of, yeah. you know for example 
great stand-up comedy, right? You know, yeah. so stand-up comedy almost always is topical in some way because yeah. it's 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 yeah. certainly taking advantage of the irony, foibles, you know, yeah. weirdness of the day. Yeah. But if you are illuminating larger human traits, mm-hmm. you know, and perfect example of this, Jerry Seinfeld is a perfect yeah. example of this, right? Yeah. When he's doing his comedy routine and listening to him, it is very topical. It is what he's talking about is very, you know, modern. However, if you go back and watch the stand-up routines from, you know, 20 years ago, well, they mm-hmm. still stand up. Yeah. Um, forgive the pun, but they still, they still, <laughs> yeah. they still are valuable and funny because what he's doing is he's illuminating human foibles. You know, the, yeah. the sort of the, the the modern challenges that we all have in life. It's just that he's using an example, and so we can still laugh at it because it's still true, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's if we if we when we're you know because not all content has to be written like this. You know, there is perfect yeah. value in writing something that's only going to be valuable for this week or you know mm-hmm. the month next month or the next hour even. Um, and so the idea that when we're creating things that we want to last, the idea is to illuminate something that will that that is sort of core to what we're trying to the value we're trying to deliver mm-hmm. and then trying to do so in a way that it doesn't matter when you consume this it's still true right mm-hmm. and that to me is 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 a really you know it's a hard thing it's a challenging thing for sure um but it doesn't have anything to do with pulling out anything that's that's yeah, necessarily yeah. topical or not using any current examples or you know and by the way then it doesn't matter if you stick a date on it right if you you put yeah. a, if you put a date on it at that point it doesn't matter yeah yeah and it was Seinfeld I was trying to think of when I was saying uh, when I when I was going through my examples ex- uh, perfect example classic comedy classic sketches and if you talk about um, some of those things it's a shortcut to an example of what you're trying to think of and the point you're trying to make. That's that's excellent. And um, have you have you written those seven things down anywhere? I have indeed. Yes, I just um, I wrote that for a post on Content Marketing Institute uh, <laughs> dot com, um, and so it's there at the moment, and it'll probably make its way to my site on Content Advisory at some point. Um, but it's something that I've I've been teaching in my classes uh, these oh, days. Splendid. And that's uh, contentadvisory.net, which is no longer a hovel. It is merely your place on the internet. And when people, when people spin the dial on the interwebs, where are they going to find you, sir? Well, they'll find me in all the classic channels, um, which, uh, which would include these days LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, okay. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I would love to connect with everybody there. That's excellent. Thank you very much, Robert. I'll, of course, include all your links in the show notes. And more importantly, will you be back here in the bar next week? I suspect I will. Yes, splendid. I look forward to it. With, uh, with all much. the space noises too, I, I you know we'll see how that goes. <laughs> That's just a temporary space festival that we're holding this week. That won't happen ever yeah. again. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cheers, mate. I'll see you then. Cheers. Thank you, Robert. Good point there about our obsession with content. So. That's a wrap on episode 114 of the Rockstar CMO Effing Marketing Podcast. I've been your host, Ian Truscott. Thanks again to Jeff, Laurie, and Robert for sharing their insight. And also, thanks to friend of the show, Dennis Shaw, for mentioning us in his Content Corner newsletter. I'll include all the guest links and to Dennis and his wonderful newsletter in the show notes, which you can find 
on your favourite podcast app or at rockstarcmo.fm where you can also find all our previous episodes. Finally, thank you for dropping a dime into your podcasting jukebox, selecting our track and jiving along with us. So... Does the world need another effing Martin podcast? Let us know on the socials or drop a rating or review in your favourite podcast app or just keep listening. I'm glad you're here. Next week, my lovely regulars Jeff and Robert will be back and my guest will be Simon Severino, a business strategy advisor and CEO of Strategy Sprints. Until then, have a great week and I hope you'll join us back here next week on Rockstar CMO FM. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.